we read part of this passage in a responsive way. And as I was reading through it, I thought this is a rather elaborate observance and commandment that the Lord has given to his people Israel on this very special, most holy day in Israel's calendar year. And I thought to myself, and I wondered why it would be that things are so specific, so precise, and what does that have to say about the nature of the atonement God has provided and the need for it that we have? So if you look at Leviticus chapter 16, it begins by telling us that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Now that must have been a very ominous you know, moment for Aaron. Moses is going to tell Aaron how on this occasion he is to enter the most holy place to make atonement for himself and for the people of Israel. And he's reminded that, remember, this is occurring after the time that Aaron's two sons, who offered offering to the Lord in an improper way, and what had happened to them. So this is sort of like a forewarning. This is serious business that Aaron needs to be about. Because what he's going to provide is so significant and so critical for himself and for the people of Israel. And so the passage goes on to say to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, first of all, he can't come whenever he chooses into the most holy place. Of course, we're speaking about the temple structure. You know that the tabernacle, which was constructed in the wilderness shortly after the Jewish people came out of Egypt, and then later Solomon had opportunity to build the temple on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, his land that was purchased by Solomon's father, David. And Solomon builds this edifice modeled after the tabernacle. The tabernacle, of course, is modeled after the temple that is in heaven. And as the construction takes place, there are three major sections to the temple area. There's the court of the women, and there's the court of the men. Inside the court of the men is the temple proper, or the tent of meeting, when it was referred to as the tabernacle, the temporary structure in the wilderness prior to the time when Solomon built the temple. So you have the court of the women, you have the court of the men, the Israelites, And then you have the temple proper. The temple was constructed in such a way that it had two sections to it. It had the holy place. And when you entered into the holy place, on the right-hand side as you entered, was the table of showbread. It was a wooden table overlaid with gold. And on top of the table were 12 loaves of bread that were set out every day. And it represented God's provision for his people, Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. On the left-hand side was a seven-branched menorah, seven-branched candelabra that was to be kept lit 
all the time. It represented the dwelling presence of God among his people. And right in the center was an altar. It was the altar of incense. Every morning and evening, a particular priest was given the privilege of placing incense on the altar and burning it. And as the smoke from the incense ascended, it represented the prayers of the people. Separating the holy place from the most holy place was a veil, a curtain. And behind that veil was a room about 15 by 15. And in it was a rectangular box made out of wood overlaid with gold. Inside this box, originally, was Aaron's rod or staff that budded, indicating he was the high priest chosen by God. Inside was placed a pot of manna, the provision of food that the Lord provided throughout the 40-year wandering in the desert. And the two tablets of the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. Covering that box was a top. And on the top were two angels, cherubim, that had wings. And on the two sides, the cherubim faced each other. And their wings came over their heads. And their wings met in the center. And between the wings was a golden plate referred to as the mercy seat. Up until the time of the Babylonian captivity, the time of Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, pillar of fire by night that led the Jewish people through the wilderness, hovered over the mercy seat in the form of a cloud. But because of Israel's sin, Ezekiel tells us in chapters 9 to 11 that there was a time when the glory of God departed from the people of Israel. And that smoke left the temple, hovered over the mountain east of the temple, which is the Mount of Olives, and then ascended into the heavens. And thus, never had been seen again and will not until the Messiah himself returns for Yeshua has told us that the next time we see him, he will come in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. The Shekinah glory will be the sign of Messiah's coming. And when the Shekinah glory appears, Messiah is soon to appear as well. At this juncture, the cloud is there as well as the articles that I've just described. So Aaron is told he cannot enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, any time he wants. He can only enter once a year, and this is the time, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when he can enter the most holy place. But he can't enter it any way he wants. There's a certain procedure he must follow. So take a look at Leviticus chapter 16 once again. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. He says, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So there needs to be two animals that will be sacrificed first. In actuality, Moses is writing the back end of the requirements, bringing us to the front end. So this is the last things he needs, the goat and the bull. Then he tells us he's to put on the sacred linen tunic 
with the linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. So now we know, we know he needs two offerings. He also has to change his garments. He would normally enter in with his priestly, the high priestly robes that are described and are very colorful. But on Yom Kippur, he has to take those colorful garments off and he has to put on white linen garments, both outer garments and undergarments, as well as the turban on his head. But before he can change those garments, we further read, if you look at chapter 16, verse 4, the text also says these are sacred garments. So he must, must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community is to take the two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So now we know he enters in his formal garb. He then takes off his garb. He then takes a ritual bath. And then he puts on his linen garb. And then he offers the sacrifices first for himself and his family. And then, as we read, one for the people of Israel. Look at verse 6. He says, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats, present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting or the temple proper. He's to cast lots for the two goats. One will be for the Lord, which will be sacrificed. The other will be a scapegoat. He'll describe that. He says, Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. So now this animal, the high priest is going to place his hands upon it, pronounce the sin of the people, much like we had prayed that prayer earlier, the Ashmenu prayer, and then that goat will be led out into the wilderness. So there's a goat being sacrificed for Aaron and his family. There's a goat being sacrificed for the people of Israel. And there's a goat upon whom the hands of the high priest will be laid and the confession of the sins will be made. And then the, that goat will be led out into the desert region. Verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering and make atonement. Oh, uh, make an atonement for himself, his household. He's to slaughter the bull for his own sin. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord. Two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them before the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He's to take some of the bull's blood with his finger, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he'll sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. So he's offering the bull. Then after the bull is offered, he's to take some of the coals from the altar. That is the altar upon which he placed the bull and put them on the altar of incense in the holy place. Then he's to take two, two full handfuls of incense and put them on the altar of incense. And the smoke is going to fill up the holy place. Then and only then will he be permitted to enter into the holy of holies. 
but not before he takes some of the blood from the animal that was sacrificed. And he's to dip his hand, his finger into the blood and seven times he will sprinkle it on the mercy seat on the box-like structure that is in the Holy of Holies with the mercy seat and the two-winged cherubim. So look at verse 15. He will then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, take its blood behind the curtain, and do with it as he did with the bull's goat. He will sprinkle it on the atonement cover and front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he'll come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He'll sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. So he's taking the blood, he's putting it on the mercy seat. He's taking the blood and he's sprinkling it on the objects in the holy place. He's taking the blood and he's putting it on the four corners of the four horns of the altar that is used for the offering of the sacrifices. Verse 20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He'll lay his both hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He will send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting. Then he can take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. He's to leave them there in the holy place. He will bathe himself again with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He will also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. After it, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and their innards are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes, bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves, not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest. You must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He's to put on the sacred linen garments, make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. 
Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Wow, that is just remarkable, is it not? And you wonder, why go through all this trouble? And the reason is the sins of Israel, the rebelliousness of our people, and for that matter, for all people. There's a problem with humanity. It is made manifest to us as we look at Israel, but what is true of Israel is true of all people. We have a serious problem. It wasn't always that way. When God created the world in six days and he then created mankind and placed him in the garden, things were not a problem. There was unity among mankind, the world that was made, and the creator of the universe. And it is remarkable when you read those six days of creation. I had time to reflect on this a little more deeply than I might otherwise, because Mary Lou and I just returned from Philadelphia and uh, a wedding. And I had opportunity to conduct the service. And as I was preparing the message I was going to share there, some things came into my mind with regard to Yom Kippur as I was anticipating this evening when I'd have opportunity to be with you. But when you look at Genesis chapter 1, you find that God creates man in his image on the sixth day. But what's interesting about the phrase, if you want to look at it, it's in Genesis chapter 1, 26, 28 or so. If you look at it, it is there that it says, let us make man in our image. That's really remarkable. Because the very next phrase says, and God made man in his image, and he created man, and, well, let me read it for you. It's close, it's close, but as they say, no cigar. And it says in verse 27, for God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So the question I wanted to ask myself was, in verse 26, why does he say, then let us make man in our image, in our likeness, let us rule, and let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the flocks, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Why didn't the text just say, after he created the animals, and God saw that it was good, then God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Why doesn't it just say that? Why does he introduce that statement with the phrase, then God said, let us make man in our image. And that made me think of the great need we have and what it is we lost. Because when God created us, he created us in his image and we still reflect something of the image of God now. But the question is, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And in all my years, I've always thought what it means is the same characteristics that are true of God are true of us to the same extent. But now I don't think that's what he means, but he might. But that's not what I think he means. I think that when he says, let us make man in his image, he means two things and only two things, but I could be wrong about this. <laughs> but he at least means these two things. Of that, I'm pretty sure. One is he created mankind, humanity, to be relational beings. And secondly, he created them to reign with him. When it says he created us in his image, 
He doesn't mean to say, oh, just as God is wise, so will human beings be wise. Just as God as whatever you want to fill in the blanks, powerful, so mankind will be powerful. I don't think that's why he says this here. I think what he wants to convey is something about God's character that we may miss. And that is that God exists in an eternal relationship within himself. That's why it says, let us make man in our image. The text could just have said, and God created man in his image. But it doesn't say that. It says, let us make man in our image. What's with the us thing? Why introduce that here at all? Because the image of God about which Moses is concerned we would know is that he made us like himself to be relational beings. Relational to one another and relational to him. And that's unique among all God's creation. As much as I love the animals, and I've spoken about that briefly in some previous moments, what is unique to human beings is we can have a relationship with God in much the same manner that God has a relationship with himself. That is the mystery of the nature of God. He exists in a community within himself. And when he made us, he made us to join with him in that community, to have a relationship with him. And that's why when he creates man, as we read about the creation of Adam specifically in chapter 2, It's the first time we read there's something not good in God's creation. In fact, after the creation of human beings, after the creation stated in Genesis chapter 1, it says not only was it good, it was very good. But then when you get to chapter 2, and man is made out of the dust of the earth, for the first time we read, and it's God's own words, this is not good. What's not good? That man should be without another should be alone why because we're creating God's image what does that mean we're meant to be in relationship with him and with others and the problem with Adam was when God initially created him he was alone and what God does is to provide the woman so that there is now community among man and woman as there is in God himself and what's even more remarkable about this is that at the end, Moses tells us about marriage. And he says, therefore a husband shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and get this, and they shall be one flesh. The same word that is used to tell us about God's nature. We said it this evening, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is echad, a unity, a relational being within himself. He is one. And when a man and woman come together, they begin to mimic God in the most profound manner. Because just as God is spoken of as echad, so man and woman married together are called echad. Why? Because we're created in his image. What does it mean to be in his image? We are meant to be relational, not only to one another, but to God. And that's why the great commandment is to love the Lord your God. And that's why the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But God did not just create us to be relational. He also created us to reign 
with him. That's what he said in Genesis chapter 1. And he, and in his likeness, and let them rule over the flesh, uh, the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air. That too is reiterated in Genesis chapter 2 because you remember that after God created woman for Adam, he tells Adam to name the animals. Now, why does he do that? I mean, it's not as if God couldn't come up with names for all the things he made. If he can make all the things, he certainly can name them as well, can't he? So why does he have Adam name them? Because Adam is to rule over them. God is giving Adam an opportunity to do what God does. He can't create but he can have authority over the creation. That's what naming is about. When you name something, you are claiming responsibility and authority for it. That's why it says that when the Messiah comes, he comes with a new name that no one knows but he himself. What what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we won't know his name and no one will know it. It means no one else can name him Because he can only name himself, for final authority rests with him. He is the coming king. And thus no one knows the name except he himself who only, who has authority over anything and everything. And thus he names himself, as it were. And that's why in the next chapter in the book of Revelation, it says that we are given new names. What it means is in the new kingdom, The Lord now has full authority over us, and we find delight in it. That's why Adam names the woman, because she comes from him. And what an interesting thing Adam does, the word for man is ish. So what does he name the woman? Isha. She is from me, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is under my authority. And I am responsible for her. And she is the one that completes me, fulfills me, and is exactly what I need. Because as Adam is told, she, he created, that is God created for him, a woman who would be suitable for him. A helper. And people don't like that word helper. They think helper, what a demeaning word. But it's the same word used for God, where in the Psalms it says, the Lord is our refuge and our helper in times of need. It means the one that meets us where our need is. And so what is the Genesis thing about and being created in the image of God? I now think, I could be wrong, but I now think that what it is about is that God made us to have a relationship with him. And only when we have a relationship with him can we have the right kind of relationship with others that he would have us to have. That's why the first commandment is to love the Lord and the second is like it, to love your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor rightly without first loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because we're creating his image. And that's what he made us for to have a relationship with him. And he's given us opportunity to reign and have authority over his creation. So why the Leviticus 16? Because when mankind, man and woman, fell in the garden, 
they lost what God had provided for them. Oh, we still manifested to some degree, but in a very fallen, distorted, disfigured manner. And that's why we have the problems in our marriage relationships that we have. That's why we have the kinds of wars and racism and all those kinds of things that we see in our world because we can't love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's because we have not come to love God as we should. The reason the atonement is so critical is because that is the means by which we can have a relationship with him. That is the means by which we can have what God initially created us to be restored. And while it may not be restored 100% this side of eternity, there is coming a day when it will be, for we will see him as he is. That is to say, we will be able to worship him as we ought. We will recognize him for who he really is and not what our limited perceptions of him are presently. We will see him in all of his glory. And that's what God is preparing for us now. Sin is that powerful a deterrent to our relationship with God and with others. We don't believe that. We think that we can simply go our own way, do our own thing, and be as kind as we can be. For after all, I'm not a really terrible person. But that's because we've not seen God in his glory. For everyone who has falls on their face and says, woe is me, I am undone. And I have to admit, I've never had that experience. I've never been so confronted by the presence of God that I said to myself, what am I doing here? But Isaiah did, Moses did, and others have. The atonement is so critical because our sin is so deep and it is so desperate and it has distorted us so terribly. And so what does it take to pay this kind of a debt? For that's what sin is. We read it throughout all Leviticus. It's amazing how our people will say this three-letter word, sin, is not a word in our vocabulary. Well, if you just look at Leviticus 16, there's enough there to say, to tell you it ought to be. And it has ruined our world. And it has ruined us so horribly that the debt we have incurred is beyond our scope to pay. And so God set up a temporary mechanism to help us understand just how estranged and alienated and separated from God we are. He set up a pattern to help us understand just how holy God is And how despicably we have violated it. So that it's only once a year and only under the most rigorous of circumstances that Aaron can enter into the Holy of Holies. And there is the debt that must be carried and thus the slaying of animals and the spilling and sprinkling and application of blood. And even that is not enough. 
Think of the years and years that the Israelites were offering up sacrifices every day in the tabernacle. Every day in the temple as it stood. And it could never take away our sin. In fact, if you look at the book of Hebrews, the writer there waxes very eloquent about this very point. He's telling us that the law, with all of the accoutrements we spoke about this evening, it is only a shadow of the good things that are to come. It is not the ultimate reality itself. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship God. The mechanism God provided for us could never take away our sin, the writer is telling us. But you don't need the writer to tell us this. If we thought about it, we would realize it as well. And he makes the very same point. If it could take away our sin, why would it be repeated? Whether every day, every week, or every year. If it did its job in taking away our sin, there would not be a need to repeat it. But the writer tells us, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for their sins, once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of our sin. That's what Yom Kippur is meant to be about. That's why we pray prayers of confession. It's to remind us of that which we would rather not be reminded of, but live with every day, our sin. But it's also to remind us of God's grace. For he did not have to step in and provide a remedy at all. He could have allowed us to simply be susceptible to his judgment and his wrath. But that is not God's way. He did not create us so as to destroy us. He created us so that we might enjoy him and that we might reign with him and that we might have a relationship with him. And when that was short-circuited, God stepped in by his grace to do something about it. And what he did was to set up a system that would help us understand what would come about sometime in the future when the Lord would provide an ultimate atonement for our sins so that we would not miss it when it occurred. Every year we would do this so that when the real thing happened, we wouldn't ask ourselves, what was that all about? We would be able to step back and say, I know what just happened. That's the reality about which the prophets and, the, and Moses and the law had been telling us all along. And that's why the writer then draws our attention to the scripture. He says, therefore, when Messiah came into the world, 
The word of God says, quoting from the Psalms, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin sin offerings, you were not pleased. The meaning is not that somehow they were disobeying God, but that it wouldn't be enough to provide final atonement for us. It wasn't pleasing with it in the sense of providing atonement once and for all. And that's when the Messiah said, Hineni, here am I. Didn't I speak about this last week? I mentioned, yes, with Rosh Hashanah. And I couldn't remember some of the other Hinanis in the scripture. I remembered Moses. I remembered Isaiah. And I couldn't remember others. But I don't think I even thought about the fact that the Messiah himself was also one who said, here am I, Hineni. And here it is, where it says, the Lord then said, or then I said, the Messiah said, this is from Psalm 40, Hineni, here am I. It is written about me in the word. I have come to do your will. And what was the will that the Messiah came to do? We read it in Isaiah 53. To offer himself an atonement for sin. And to pay the price, the debt that we have incurred. And so the opportunity is for us while we still breathe. To say, Lord, thank you for what you have done for me. The opportunity is still there. You know, the, Peter say, says in the last days, people are going to be saying, if the Lord is coming, where is he already? Why doesn't he come? It reminds me of those scoffers that said at the foot of the cross, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down? Well, if he came down, salvation would not be possible. And if he comes, salvation will not be possible for those who have waited too long. It's all out of God's grace. His delay is meant for our good, not as an excuse to refuse what he's offering to you and to me today. And so don't miss out on what the Lord has provided for you this day of atonement. I said earlier there was a pamphlet that said a day but no atonement. Don't let that be your you. Don't let that be your legacy. For if you are one with no atonement, then you will have to pay the debt yourself. But if you have the atonement, then the debt has been paid for you. And more than that, the Spirit of God will then come into your life to restore what we lost. The opportunity to have a relationship with the living God of the universe and the opportunity to be the kind of person that loves others rather than themselves and is ready to be like our Savior who came as a servant to serve one another. My prayer is that this Yom Kippur will truly be, if it hasn't been already, a Yom Kippur for you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your truth. It is always so interesting and so fulfilling to our heart and our soul as well as to our mind. 
Father, may we not miss what your word teaches. And may we not fail to receive all that your word offers as well. May we truly give ourselves to you in gratitude for what your son has given for us. For he gave himself for us as that final atonement for our sin. So Lord, we would praise you for all that you have done for us. And we worship you as the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, our Father, our Father, 